Tonight I want to speak about um, sort of ways that wisdom and love and compassion work together, support one another. Or you could say they're the same thing. Sometimes people, well, it's said generally that the natural fruit of understanding of wisdom, the natural fruit of it is compassion, is love. That's the way we would naturally be in the world. And sometimes in uh, doing these Brahma-vihara practices, the question comes up and several people have posed it to me in different ways. Aren't we doing it kind of backwards? Trying to cultivate metta and compassion without uh, necessarily having the base of wisdom, of understanding. Or another way um, people have brought it up to me is how can I expect to generate pure metta or pure compassion without kind of pristine understanding. It's bound to be somewhat tainted. And I, there was a time when I thought I used to think like that, but I really know now that that's not so. That it's not a case of it has to move always in one direction. You know, you have to start with wisdom and then maybe you can, by some grace, touch love and compassion or vice versa. That they both arise together, sort of like two sides of the same wholeness, the same spiritual wholeness. And that either way, it seems to me, practiced quite sincerely, each leads into the other. For example, the, the insight, the wisdom of emptiness, of unity, of interconnectedness, that quite naturally, as soon as we touch that sense of total completeness, quite naturally expresses as love and compassion. It makes complete sense. But on the other hand, as we deepen in loving kindness, as we deepen in our uh, cultivation and experience of true compassion, we can find that this also becomes a pathway to deeply knowing and experiencing the the truth of non-separation, the truth of emptiness of a separate self, the truth of total interconnectedness. So in a way, either aspect, the practice of insight, the practice of the Brahma-viharas, both become gateways to truth. And either way, you end up with the other one. You can't really separate. You can't just practice one. You can't stay lopsided, really, if we're practicing this really sincerely. A Hindu teacher that I know, so this is slightly different language, but she said, to be on a wisdom path, such as insight practice, is to know. And the more that you know the Dhamma, the truth, the more you love. To be a bhakti on a devotional path is to choose the path of love. And the more that you love the Dhamma, the truth, the more you know. It works both ways. After a while, you can't really separate it. And I feel quite deeply that a true, authentic, full spirituality is going to be deeply rooted in both insight, 
and in love and compassion. Really, I mean, really, in my mind, it's inseparable. So I want to talk a little bit about some of the ways that these two aspects divided for the sake of our rational, sometimes linear minds, so we can talk about things, um, two ways that these two aspects of our spiritual wholeness uh, can develop and support each other. How can compassion, how can love open us into that heartfelt, intuitive understanding of truth beyond words, beyond any concepts? One Tibetan teacher, quite a high lama, he wrote in one of his books that, in his opinion, and it's probably not just his opinion, the supreme method, the supreme way to become quickly and deeply at home with the radiance of our true nature, to recognize this pristine truth and to really become more and more familiar with it, the supreme method is that of devotion and compassion. And he explains it in this way, that in a moment of pure love, pure compassion, when the mind and the body and the speech are just filled. Just think, if you've had a moment, it just has to be that amount of time. We're not talking about dwelling here unchangingly. We're just talking about a moment. When the body, speech, and mind are just filled and overflowing with unconditional love or with unconditional compassion, in that moment, if you were to think to look inwardly, the way he describes it, it would be as if, in looking inwardly, it would be like the radiant nature, a pristine, true nature, would be shining like the sun when it's unobscured by clouds. That it just shines in the, in the center, so to speak, of love, of compassion. Or as he puts it, in the moment of love, the empty nature dawns nakedly. It's just there. Nothing we have to do. In fact, there's nothing we can do. It's because in the moment of love and compassion, for that moment, somehow we've managed to stop trying to do. That allows this unobscured nature to shine, to dawn nakedly. In that moment, in all these different moments that they happen, it might be quick, but in that moment, we're really vividly awake. It's not kind of a dulled out sort of, this is nice, but I don't know where I am or who I am. We're vividly awake, and there is also the heart at that moment is completely free from any attachment or any aversion. Just in that moment. So there's vivid awakeness, no attachment, and no aversion. That's what allows this knowing, this connection, this potential to open to freedom of heart, freedom of mind. So through the practice of the Brahma Viharas, through moments of love, of compassion, we begin to discern 
the wisdom of non-attachment through the vehicle of joy, through the vehicle of love, which you've got to admit is sometimes a lot nicer than through the vehicle of suffering, which is also a way that we discern quite profoundly the wisdom of non-attachment. And I mean, both are useful. I mean, I think we need both. But like a lot of people here have said, this, this something has to be wrong because either this feels too good or, um, you know, it's feeling easy. It's not supposed to be so pleasant. It must not be the right feeling. I'm cheating. I mean, those are things, all of those somebody has said, you know, because we're so inured to thinking that only through the depths of suffering can we discern truth. And we need to be able to discern truth and suffering. We can't only discern it through joy either. But we can sometimes. It's, it helps. It's really quite powerful. One of the ways I feel that, for me, uh, my understanding of the peace, the joy that comes from non-attachment, how that's been strengthened through uh, metta and compassion practice, is because, and the other Brahma-viharas too, is because these Brahma-viharas, in that moment of just touching the pure state, we really experience quite profoundly and unmistakably a peace or a happiness or a connectedness that is so much more peaceful, so much more happy than the happiness that comes through attachment. It's so much more profound a happiness or a connectedness or a unity than the feeling of completion that I get when I get what I want. Which, on the kind of general level of life in our culture, when we haven't really been investigating, it's so easy to uh, associate happiness with getting what we want. And so, in a way, attachment itself comes in a funny way if we're not really looking attachment or grasping or wanting itself can be associated with pleasure with a sort of a it can almost be a sweet delight you know in longing for something and you notice yourself sometimes going back into a fantasy that it's total longing and when you wake up from it it's just so clear that whatever you were longing for isn't here but we get seduced back into it over and over again, you know. If we really look, what's so pleasant about it? What kind of fulfillment is coming? But we keep getting seduced by that unclear association of longing with um, happiness, present or future. So it is important to begin to understand more and more deeply the nature of attachment. And this is where our wisdom practice, our insight practice, is a very important balance and tool. So with the loving kindness, we might have experienced intuitively such a profound peace and happiness that when we're back in the uh, attachment, we can sort of feel how sort of washed out that kind of happiness is by comparison. But to bring in some investigation, some insight, will really help us to see more clearly, to understand more clearly what's going on, and perhaps we won't get so seduced so often 
by attachment. So, as I said with aversion the other night, with attachment is the same thing. When there's a feeling of clinging, of grasping, of wanting, it's arising in relationship to something that's happening right now, in this moment. It might be that there's a pleasant sensation in the body or a pleasant emotional experience that's happening, a pleasant meditative experience that's happening, or, and this is more, more subtle, or we're more likely to miss it, a pleasant thought about a future pleasant experience that might happen, or a past pleasant experience that happened once 10 years ago and it might happen again. And we don't often, without paying attention, notice that the thought itself is the pleasant experience that's keeping us, that's leading into this feeling of attachment. It's easy to bypass that and get really involved in how can I make this experience happen that's so pleasant? How can I get back to that experience that happened before? And, you know, we get sucked into whole worlds of desire and making things happen and trying to change behavior not noticing that it's just the mind, the heart, is pulled towards something pleasant that's happening right now. Just as in aversion, it cringes away. In pleasantness, it's like, yes, yes, this is the one, this is it. Let's just dive right into and hold on to this as long as possible. Obviously, it's how things are supposed to be, and it'll never change. And I'll do whatever I can to ensure that it never changes. And of course we all go, well, that's a setup for suffering. And of course it is. But without paying attention, how often is that how we behave? Quite a lot. Quite a lot. So when we begin to notice when attachment is present in the mind, not to hate it, not to say this is evil, and I'm an evil person, or I'm hopeless because so much attachment's arising. It's our human condition. The mind is drawn towards the pleasant. You know, that's just how it is. But we can begin to just be a little more aware of the experience of attachment when it's happening. Because when we really pay attention to it, a lot of the uh, pleasant, seductive aspects really can drop away. So when, there's, when you're really wanting something, to happen. You're really attached to a thought, a sensation, an emotional state. What's going on in relationship to any sense of connection with yourself, with life, with other beings, with anything else that's happening in experience? Attachment gives us tunnel vision. This thing is good. Other things are generally in the way. So even something so simple as you have a certain place you like to sit in the dining room at lunch. And you're really happy if you get to sit in that place. So how do you feel if you're a little late and you see someone heading towards your place? Just something really stupid like that. But we're attached to it. The people ahead of us in line are in the way. The person sitting in, the, in our place is, you know, really a villain it's, we, you know, we might be able to work up some sense of loving kindness to ourselves and them, but it's not the first reaction. And other places are 
dismissed, you know. Somehow that place is glowing golden and everywhere else is just, you know, down in the dumps. And that's just a silly example. But our mind, you know, I said the other night how craving puts feathers on the object. It distorts our perception so there's a sense of separation, me and other. There's also uh, an unreliable perception of whatever the craving is leading us into as being so beautiful. And and we can't trust that perception at all. I had this is uh, I was sitting this spring. I did a month self retreat, and uh, it was difficult. I mean, a lot of fear, a lot of difficult stuff was coming up. And at one point, longing was coming up, craving. And the object that would incite the craving that my mind would grab onto was an image, a thought that would keep coming up about a particular street corner in Bangkok. And it would bring up this longing. And even even with that happening, my mind was saying, "There there is nothing. This street corner in Bangkok is a pit. There is nothing about this street corner in Bang Lampu that is remotely attractive. I never hoped to be back on that street corner in my life. And that's how I felt at the time. I had just come through Bangkok on my way to this place. And my mind is going, what? What is looking so enticing about this street corner? But then the image would come up, and my heart would go, oh, to be back on that street corner in Bang Lampu, you know, and it would start kind of adorning these little little shops that sold, like, locks and electric sockets. And I mean, really, it, it was very interesting. And this kept happening over and over and it got very amusing to me because it was so clear that there would be that moment when that image would arise and that street corner would just be so beautiful and so attractive. And then, then the next moment, I go, oh, no, not again, you know. Well, that's what craving does. Only a lot of times it's not so obvious to us how really out to lunch it is. And so we get sucked in. In that moment, in that moment of attachment to whatever it is, the attachment doesn't make the thing we're attached to bad or that we have to reject it. You know, we'll be attached to our friends, we'll be attached to our families. At times, it doesn't mean that therefore I should never have anything to do with my family because attachment comes up. It's more looking at the attachment itself in the moment that it's there and seeing the effect it has. In the moment of attachment, there's no freedom of heart. There's no freedom of mind. There's not true love or compassion in that moment of attachment, which can also be just as short as that. But the moment of attachment is a moment of separation. It's a moment of positing me and other. A moment of positing incompleteness and needing something else to find fulfillment. But it's not to be hated. It's just by accepting, we begin to see through it. As Krishnamurti said once, unless the ways of desire are understood, illusion is inevitable. So on the side of understanding of wisdom, and our Brahma-vihara practice helps us in this, It's just our challenge to begin to understand more and more deeply the ways of desire. 
And so with insight, we see the impermanent nature of everything that's desired. We begin to feel more deeply the suffering nature of desire itself, of attachment, attachment that's kind of craving, clinging I'm talking about itself. And we can see how the, the sense of grasping, the blindness, follows so closely and quickly on an experience that's simply beautiful and pleasant that we can easily begin to confuse having any kind of uh, being able to enjoy and really appreciate the beautiful, the pleasant, the wonderful in life because the tendency of mind is that so easily that can turn into attachment that sometimes it turns the other way and we think, well, I shouldn't... uh, enjoy beauty you know I shouldn't even practice loving kindness because I'm just going to get attached to it so forget it you know just stay away from anything pleasant so I'm certainly not talking about that it doesn't mean to live a life of fear of beauty or fear of love it doesn't mean no joy but it really is seeing the difference between deep love and appreciation of an experience or what's happening and how it switches over to attachment. And if we can do that with interest rather than with aversion or self-blame, it can be really fascinating. Another small example from my retreat this year, it was, uh, I was in a really beautifully landscaped retreat center in South Africa. But very, it's, uh, it wasn't a wild landscape at all, really sort of English garden kind of landscape. And along the paths, they have, they're lined with huge bushes of white irises. And just bush after bush after bush, really quite a beautiful vista. And for the first couple weeks, there weren't much blooms on the bushes. And for a few days, it was very rainy and cold. And uh, my experience wasn't exactly cheery to go along with the rainy and cold. And then one day, the sun came out really bright and it's so green and very beautiful and suddenly on, on just about all of these iris, iris bushes lots and lots of these very delicate beautiful white blooms came out white with a little center of violet but so many on these vistas of bushes with these blooms and it was just uh, so delicate and exquisitely beautiful you know it just matched a kind of delicate happiness that was beginning to come into my experience. So the two together kind of blew me away and I was filled with this delight and joy and a real sense of just love of being. And so I was just appreciating it, being in it a few minutes. And then it sort of switched to, this is so beautiful. And I know it won't stay this way. I really would be good if I could take a picture of this. <laughs> because it's so lovely. And my mother, I know, would love to see this. She loves to garden. And this went on, but I don't have a camera. How can I get a camera? And it went on and on for quite a while, maybe 10 minutes, till I suddenly realized that here I was standing, the beautiful thing I was appreciating hadn't even gone away yet. You know, it was still here. And already I'd moved from really joy and happiness into suffering because it was going to go away and I didn't have a camera to capture it. It was funny and sort of, <laughs> sort of funny. But really clear 
that how easy it can slide from one to the other, how easily we can confuse it. So metta, mudita, even compassion, give us an experience of a much purer connection, joy, peace, a unity of total presence that as we experience it over and over in varying degrees, even if you're not conscious of it, it will begin to loosen sort of uh, our bonds of attachment or our inclination to respond always with attachment to what is beautiful. So that's one way that wisdom of non-attachment and the practice of the Brahma Viharas sort of work together. Another way that kind of brings the two practices together that shows without the joining, there's a sort of a, not quite of a wholeness to our spiritual being. Sometimes I felt that the wisdom of, of emptiness of non-attachment, of no self. Without a practice of the Brahma Viharas, without the compassion, without the love, the wisdom of emptiness, it can seem to me a bit aloof, sort of removed. You know, we sit, we walk, everything comes and goes. See very clearly It's all impermanent, whatever emotional state, whatever physical state, whatever thought arises and passes, terrifying, beautiful, whatever. It's all impermanent. It's not self. It comes and goes. And we're saying that in this practice too. There's nothing that's going to last. So in this wisdom of of impermanence, of emptiness, seeing that, without it being connected to life with compassion, with love, it's kind of easy to, well, what matters? Who cares? What difference does it make? What I do? Because everything's coming and going, as am I. In fact, I'm not even here to come and go anyway. What difference does it make? And on the other side, when we're cultivating the Brahma Viharas and not aware of a sense of wisdom, and sometimes I would, in a kind of a dull moment, feel like this as well, a wonderful feeling we're connected. It's connected, it's lovely, it feels really good, or maybe it doesn't feel really good. I'm just repeating this phrase over and over and over. And on the other side, we're accepting whatever comes, whatever comes up in my experience with compassion, that's okay. I'm acting like a jerk, that's okay. I'm really angry, that's okay. I wrote a horrible note, that's okay. Everything is to be accepted. So, what about any kind of response in life? You know, are we just either going to be cool, removed, distant, untouched by things, or do we become these really moist, compassionate wimps that can't really respond in any clear way? These are like an exaggeration of the two sides when they don't come together, or when at a moment practice can feel out of balance, not always rounded all the time. So one place that I want to talk about where they do come together is in the aspect of our experience that is intention. And we've talked about this before, that what we're 
actually developing and cultivating in our Brahma Vihara practices here is a strengthening of the intentions of metta, of karuna, of mudita, and of equanimity tomorrow. So I want to talk a little bit about about what that means and how intention is really the coming together of wisdom and of compassion. And it's really the way that we then act in the world. So intention, as, as you must know, as many of you have experienced, is that the impulse of the mind that gives rise to speech, gives rise to action, and even to thought, although that's really hard to notice. And so sometimes people sitting here will notice, you know, the impulse before you stand up. And sometimes if you feel it, then you can choose to stand up or not. Or the impulse before you move your arm to scratch an itch. And if you notice it, then sometimes there's a moment of choice to scratch or not. So these intentions, these motivational force to act, um, are arising due to conditions, of course. They don't just arise out of nowhere. And they arise from conditions and accompanied with certain mental states. So an intention to stand up could arise from aversion. It could arise from fear. You know, it could arise from a pain in your leg. It could arise from hunger. It could arise from just kind of clear seeing. The bell rang and it's time to go walk. You know, there's a whole range. And you can't tell from the way an action looks, or even from the result of an action, you can't necessarily tell what the intention is. The same action could actually have sprung from many different kinds of intentions. And the way that um, cause and effect or karma is understood in Buddhism is that the seed of whether an action is wholesome or unwholesome, skillful or unskillful, the seed of that action is determined not by the result, but by the intention. That all the motivation and all the uh, effects that will come from that action karmically, whether we'll suffer or not from it, is in that seed of intention which is a little different from how we might normally evaluate our actions. Like I might do, so, do something that I feel sort of angry, but I say something to someone and it doesn't seem to have a bad effect, you know. I say, well, even though I was coming from anger, it worked out okay. You know, they didn't really get it or the right thing happened. It doesn't work like that in, in this understanding of cause and effect that if I speak with the intention of anger, even if the seemingly effect looks like it's okay, that it really is an unskillful action and that at some point I'm going to suffer from that anger, which actually, if I'm paying attention, I suffer as soon as I say something from anger. I can't, I'm talking quite personally now, as soon as something angry comes out of my mouth, I really feel a lot of even physical pain but definitely emotional pain and separation. You know? And that's not from judgment. It's not from hating myself. It's from the actual effect of the anger in my experience. But anyway, so the seed of intention 
is extremely powerful because it's our how we understand things is what gives rise to our intention, which can manifest as thought, and it's the intention that leads to how we speak and act in the world, how we connect who we are, how we respond to situations. It all comes out of intention. It's, it's really very crucial. So what we're doing, actually, moment to moment here, in our Brahma-vihara practice, is we're working on the level of conscious intention. Each time that we you know, manage to remember or have the energy and the commitment to come back and say, may I, may you be safe from danger, may you be free from suffering, whichever thing we're saying, we're working deeply at the core of our habits of response to situations that are giving rise to the intentions of how we're going to be ourselves and how we're going to be with other beings. So far from being a passive practice where we're just sitting here like mummies and saying things over and over and over, you know, oh, maybe happy, maybe happy, you know, what's the point of this? We're really, whether you're aware of it or not, it's a crucial reconditioning that's going on. It's really beginning to soften our habitual response and to allow the intentions of kindness, of compassion, to surface more naturally, more spontaneously. When we're, when we're unaware of our intention or we're not really paying attention to what's going on, our habits of mind, which often are aversion and confusion and attachment, give rise to so much speech and action in the world, even from the smallest uh, experience. So back to my experience with the irises. Even though I saw, oh, look at the suffering that's being created, I'm missing something that's still here. It's still that attachment still continued to arise in the mind enough to give rise to an intention to actually see if I could borrow a camera, which necessitated calling my one friend in South Africa who wasn't there and, you know, seeing a phone kept being hit by electricity and being out for five days at a time. So you know how it is on a retreat. A simple phone call should be easy, but it really, you, you end up putting so much energy to walk to the place and find a time when no one's there and then the phone doesn't work or the line's busy and you go back and it can occupy so much energy and so much mental time, you know, to do one simple thing. Now, each, each of those actions, each time I went back, each time I thought about it, each time I actually made the co- a call and couldn't get through it and then tried again, each of those is a separate intention So it's not like just one intention arose, oh, I'd like to get a camera. It was being strengthened over and over and over. And the intention of action is stronger than the intention of speech. So so in a way, in all that little scenario, I was quite unconsciously, somewhat sometimes consciously, strengthening and cultivating the intention of attachment. You know, and we can be quite good at that. Cultivating attachment, cultivating aversion. We don't really think of it that way, 
but it's a habit. And even with our overall best intentions, you know, my overarching intention to go on a retreat certainly is to, to cultivate more freedom of heart, more understanding, more compassion. I certainly don't go to think, let me see how many different ways I can think of to cultivate attachment. You know? And I don't go to think I want to hate myself because I will cultivate attachment and then I'll hate myself for wasting my time. No. We have, I'm sure, whatever your conscious intention was in coming here, it's something very beautiful, very skillful. You didn't come here, I'm sure, to think, how many ways can I abuse myself for the next 10 days? <laughs> but the habits pop up. They're going to pop up. You know, and that's okay. Part of our process here is being able to see them. So that's why in every retreat we have space wars, we have, you know, wars over rooms. We have conflicts over who wants the lights on and who wants the lights off. You know, every retreat this happens. And we all have the best overarching intentions. But the habits that give rise to thought, speech, and action are just really deeply ingrained habits. The Buddha said that that which the mind dwells upon frequently towards that the mind will naturally incline. So in other words, if we're you know, thinking about aversion, for instance, if you're sitting here hating yourself frequently, then in a moment of unawareness, that's going to be the easiest way, easiest slope for the mind to go down, as Steve might say. So it might seem a little rote sometimes, cultivating love for yourself, cultivating compassion for yourself. But where do our minds dwell if we just leave them to their own devices? (laughs) This is from Ramakrishna. He says, in effect, one is constantly repeating, consciously or unconsciously, I am not free. The conditioned person obsessively repeats, I am worthless, I am superficial, I am incapable of transcendent insight. So the more we repeat this, the state of illusory bondage becomes increasingly vivid and convincing. Does that sound familiar to anybody? It just doesn't seem like so much work to keep saying this to ourselves over and over because we're so used to it, you know. And it seems like so much work to keep coming back to something different because we're basically going against the grain of habit. And so many of you have seen, you know, just how difficult it, it has been or can be. How, how coming back and saying, yes, I really do care about myself. Yes, I really do accept myself just as I am how that can almost like raise the the sleeping demons of all the ways we've been used to speaking to ourselves, we've been used to describing ourselves, we've been used to affirming ourselves unconsciously for so much of our life. And so in, in one way, that's one reason that loving kindness, karuna, mudita, can seem so difficult. 
Another is just that concentration practice is difficult because it means disciplining the mind, and the mind is rather undisciplined. But it's also because it's going against our deeply habituated intentions of thought, speech, and action. So where better to start in strengthening these intentions of metta and of compassion than with ourselves? And so it's really wonderful. It makes, makes us really happy to see that, you know, most people here have been quite okay and willing and even eager to spend a lot of time with yourself, you know, and really begin to see that this is not a cop-out, you know, and this is not selfish. But what better place could we start to really cultivate and strengthen these intentions, just even the intention of thought, than by bringing it into how we relate to ourselves and into our moment-to-moment experience here. Not trying to be grandiose, not you know expecting that after 10 days here, we'll walk out of here and just meet everything that comes our way with wisdom and love, just to start, you know, in little ways, with our simple practice. But you can really see how it begins to bear fruit. Not only in that the ability to come back to our conscious intention via the the phrases and who we're sending love or compassion or mudita to, be it ourselves or others, that that gets easier, that the feelings when we're doing the formal practice might become stronger or more accessible at times, more flowing. But also in the seemingly other aspect of the practice, all the so-called difficulties, the demons that come up and rear their heads, that's just as important, in fact, sometimes even more so way, both to get some feedback as to the fact that perhaps even tiny, tiny bit, intention is actually becoming easier for the intention of caring, of compassion to arise. And it's also a way that we can more consciously practice not just the thought, but also in action. That's why we, we speak so much about really paying attention to how do you meet the difficulties that arise in your time here? How do you relate to yourself when you're really filled with petty irritation at someone else's behavior here? And rationally, you know, you know, it doesn't make that much difference and something always happens rationally, but inside you really want to kill. And it happens to all of us at different times. How do you relate to that in yourself? How do you relate to the sleepiness? How do you relate to the intensity of judgment because your mind wanders off more than you want it to? Or because you want to feel loving and instead you feel bored? Or to really powerful sense of self-judgment or self-hatred or lust or fear or restlessness? or any of the demons that come up, whether they seem petty or whether they're really overwhelming, st- 
still, this practice of compassion, of metta, is giving us the opportunity over and over and over again to respond from an intention of caring. And amazingly enough, at times it actually happens. Sure, then we fall back into habit, of course. You know, we tend to be impatient. Once we've been able to accept that I get irritated very easily at at people who are doing nothing except clomping their feet a little loudly, I think, okay, now I've accepted it. That's it. I've accepted it. That's it for that particular demon. And of course, it doesn't work that way. The next moment, we might be irritated again. Okay, another potential to cultivate the intention of compassion to myself. This irritation is suffering. And it happens. It's really quite amazing to see that by cultivating intention as it manifests as thought, the thought of the phrases that we're saying, it seems so rote, it seems so dry, and suddenly stuff really starts to happen. Now, do you feel like that's actually, you're making any of this stuff happen? Do you feel like you could actually if you wanted to? For me, this whole practice is one of very powerful experience of the uncontrollability of experience of no self. That as much as I say, may I be free from suffering, I don't actually feel like I can make myself feel compassion for myself by saying that. I feel like I'm just saying it and trying to mean it. And then suddenly I'm really suffering and poof, up comes this spurt of real caring for myself where another time I would have really taken out the whip. So to give, not to be too um, cynical or think that even if you don't feel anything much going on, except that you can say the phrases a little more easily than you could eight days ago. Please don't think that that's all that's going on. There's a lot happening on a very deep level. Really learning to meet our demons as they are, however huge or however small, is very, very powerful. Love and acceptance for the demons and for ourselves. And it's not, as you know, compassion, love, is not necessarily the easy way. It sometimes might sound like it. Oh, yes, you know, accept everything and everything's really nice. But especially if you started with compassion yesterday, you find it that that quivering of the heart in connection to pain, it's not that it's a painful practice. Ultimately, compassion is very beautiful, very connected, this soft, quivering heart. But I wouldn't say it was the easy way. It's really very difficult what we're doing here. But it's true compassion. That grows and strengthens from the way you're relating to yourself in even these littlest demons that come to visit. I don't want to, I just want to emphasize that because so often we pass that over and think that nothing's happening, the big stuff isn't happening. It's in these little moments 
that these intentions are being more strongly cultivated. But true compassion, as soft and tender and quivering as our heart is in response to our own or another's pain, is actually gives so much strength and so much courage. It's somehow, again, that the softness of the connection, it's not, it's not about wimping out and not being able to act. It gives us strength and energy and courage of a warrior, so to speak. This is from Chogyam Trungpa. He's talking about how compassion gives us the strength to be very connected, to be with great difficulty. I'm at the awakened heart of the warrior. There's nothing there in the awakened heart except for tenderness. Your heart is completely exposed. Even if a tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. You would like to spill your heart's blood to give your heart to others. For the warrior... This experience of sad and tender heart is what gives birth to fearlessness. Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. You are willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You are willing to share your heart with others. That's the real, to me, that I just love that as an expression of the exquisite tenderness and connectedness to our own, to others' pain. But this connectedness, rather than causing us to shrink back, gives us the fearlessness and courage that because of the connectedness, the compassion, when met with wisdom, will spontaneously lead to clear action. It's not at all about cultivating some sense of, you know, a total acceptance of everything that then does not lead to any kind of clear action or any kind of relational connection in the world, but just the opposite. It gives us the courage to act. You can see this from role models. This is Steve mentioned last night, talking about Aung San Suu Kyi, just how amazingly fearless a woman like that can be on the strength of the tenderness of heart, of compassion and love, that when we really feel that quivering of pain and the clarity, the clear seeing that can come from wisdom, then there's the fearlessness and courage to act in a way that's appropriate but that is also acting from intentions of compassion, not confusing uh, result. In other words, knowing that you can't control the result, but doing whatever is clear action coming from compassion and anger. I mean, not anger. (laughs) Coming from compassion and not anger. My mind was jumping ahead, because so often, when we're not deeply rooted in compassion and wisdom, It can be so painful that we're opened with some compassion to the so much suffering in the world of others or in ourselves, but there's still some, either the pain is so overwhelming 
that we don't know how to balance in it with equanimity or we're still attached in some way to uh, a result or somehow thinking we can control the result. And this can lead to so much frustration. An action that begins out of compassion is continued in anger and frustration. And it starts to sort of burn up its source. I have uh, taught a retreat the last couple of years for, in quotations, it's for burned out environmentalists who want to sort of, you know, connect or reconnect with their spirituality. And some of them have told me and the, the, their hours are grueling, the work is endless, the cause just goes on and on and on, and uh, the work itself can be totally maddening and frustrating, you know, and they say it's difficult, if almost impossible, not to fall into frustration and anger, which can be a really energizing emotion, but it's exactly what leads to the sense of being burned out, you know, and it's at some point then we lose the tender heart of the warrior because it's so tender, it's so tender that without the balance of equanimity, we almost can't bear it, you know, and so we've got to do something to change this, to change this. So this is how the, the compassion, the love, really must, as we deepen and deepen in this tenderness, it must be balanced with the wisdom of equanimity, with knowing that deeply as we care, deeply as we're connected, we can only work from our intention. We cannot in any way think that we can control results or think that somehow with our best intention we're going to be able to end all suffering. You know, someone here was telling me that she has friends who work with the homeless and that they've said the way that they can continue their work without getting burned out is by knowing, knowing they're not going to be able to help everybody, they're not going to be able to end the problem of homelessness, and they may not, with all their caring, be able to help specific people. I'm sure you've run up against this in your metta, in your (laughs) compassion practice, where we feel so much caring for a particular person and wish that if we could just care hard enough, we could change perhaps self-destructive patterns or outer events in their life or health, say, that we have no control over. And how to be able to stay that connected in compassion, in love, not flinch away because we can't always change things. This is the real dance of wisdom and compassion, of equanimity and knowing we can't control, but at the same time not giving up because we can't control. How to act from compassion and with wisdom. It's quite a delicate, quite a delicate dance that we do. But it doesn't have to mean that we just shrink back and say, forget it. Another uh, role model for me, much like Aung San Suu Kyi, is uh, Sister Chan Kong, who is Thich Nhat Hanh's uh, colleague, used to be called Sister Fong, who um, 
ever since I met her some 10 years ago, it was just this amazing dynamo of energy, incredible energy. And as, of course, one can never tell looking from outside, but as far as I could project, much, much, much of what she is doing is really coming out of caring for other people and trying to help trying to help people in prison in Vietnam now, trying to help the boat people. When I was at Plum Village, it was trying to help anybody who had a problem, whether it was spiders in their room or wanting to stay in a nicer room or needing some kind of special food or organizing whatever needed to be organizing. No kind of drawing the lines that this is too (coughs) mundane or this is really great, but just doing whatever needed to be done to help people with a tremendous amount of energy, a tremendous amount of courage. And when I read her autobiography recently, what touched me very deeply is the fact that she, she really does seem quite motivated by compassion and very openly acknowledging that in her whole 30 years or 40 years since before the war in Vietnam and during the war in Vietnam, being in situations of enormous suffering that I can't even begin to imagine. Seeing friends killed by grenades from either side in the war and somehow finding an ability to care deeply for her friends, to say eulogies at their funeral without blaming people. Blaming, saying, you know, I see our enemies are hatred and ignorance, but our enemies are not the Vietnamese people. What touched me even more, though, is that this wasn't that this just came naturally to her, that she's just always connected and always loving, but that starting back when she was young and even now, she has to really continue to work at it, continue to cultivate how to come from an intention of caring, a contention, an intention of compassion, that even now, she says, when she hears of um, new nuns, and monks or artists being put in jail in Vietnam. She's initiating whole letter writing campaigns and trying to you know, speak to people in authority that she somehow has lines into to try and get them out of jail. But she says even now she'll get really angry when she first hears about it and she will not do anything as long as she's angry. She'll meditate She'll consciously cultivate compassion. She'll consciously cultivate mindfulness and loving kindness until she can find some way to feel a connection of some kind with the people that she's going to write to. And only then will she actually write a letter when she can. And sometimes she say it could take weeks. And I'm just very touched by the, the depth of commitment It's an inspiration to me, both in that compassion doesn't turn us into weaklings, but I think just the reverse, and that it must come with wisdom of not just expecting it to be automatic and being willing to really look and see what our intentions are. And if we have that moment of choice to say, okay, let me see, can I go back to the karuna practice? Can I go back to the metta practice? And if I can wait until I act, until I can come from a clearer intention, I will. And of course, there's times when we can't wait, or we don't wait, or we don't have that clarity to see. And that's when we bring in the compassion and the kindness to ourselves.
not expecting that we're somehow going to be perfect. You know? Our life isn't perfect. So our start here, it may seem kind of modest, you know? We're starting with ourselves. The results might not be what you had hoped for or expected. They might be much more than you hoped for or expected. It might be totally different from what you hoped for. But even if you're having some really beautiful, peaceful experience now, that'll change. (laughs) I mean, it's nice. It's wonderful. But the experience itself, as you're experiencing it now, will change. But on a much more, I think, profound and subtler level, a much deeper change is going on, a real shift in our understanding of who we truly are, our understanding of the world, of what the potential of true happiness is, and that somewhere in each of you, there's a little seed of knowing that that potential for true happiness is your birthright and is part of who you are and that we all have access to it. And whether you're feeling that or not right now, I don't think that's the main point. Because these changes in how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to and connect with others, and how we will be and can be in the world, both connected and effective, are going on at the often unconscious level of our habits of mind, our habits of belief, of really knowing what's true. And I think you might be surprised, I know I was, to find that once I was no longer in retreat, and not even consciously necessarily thinking I want to be really connected to all beings, that this would just start to come up spontaneously. I would say or do something out of metta or compassion without thinking I was going to do that. Whereas before, I could do something out of aversion and attachment without thinking that I was going to do that. And even though we might seem like it's still pretty conditional love right now to ourselves, to people we care about, maybe sometimes to all beings or an enemy, but often people here saying, well, it still feels quite conditional. Don't worry about it. Because it just will fill up and fill up and spill over by itself. And even if you never have the conscious intention to want to have compassion for all beings or to be practicing for all beings, it sort of starts to happen anyway. Because in this connection of this tender heart with yourself and others, in that moment of connection when someone's pain is your pain, you can't tell the difference. In that moment, it's it's so clear that we really... We are all beings. All beings are us. And even if we don't put that into uh, a conscious thought to ourselves, we have a profound effect on all beings we come in touch with. This is from the Dalai Lama. Through inner peace, genuine world peace, can be achieved. 
In this, the importance of individual responsibility is quite clear. Peace must first be discovered within ourselves, then gradually expanded to include our families, our communities, and ultimately the whole planet. Developing such attitudes as love and compassion between human beings is not merely a source of personal happiness, but has become a condition for human survival. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.